Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It is 8.08 in the Twin Cities, 30 degrees. Time to talk politics, Esme Murphy here, along with Professor Stephen Shear of Carleton College. How are you tonight? I am well, thank you. All right, and as we were talking just before, uh, just in the break there, as always, an awful lot to talk about. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, the political season is heating up. I mean, we're already in the 2020 presidential election cycle, if you can believe it. Right. Well, it's, you know, interesting. I read an article today saying that the president apparently is obsessed with Joe Biden and his poll numbers, which in every poll, Joe Biden is significantly ahead. Of course, Joe Biden has not yet formally announced. What are your thoughts about the fact that that as the polls are shaking out right now, Joe Biden does have a substantial lead, although actually in some of them, Bernie Sanders is very close behind and the rest of the field further back with Kamala Harris and Cory Booker kind of a little bit more in the middle section, also with Elizabeth Warren. And then you've got Amy Klobuchar and others trailing further back. Yeah, well, uh, I just counted. I think we have 15 candidates declared now. And so it is a real it's a rugby scrum, you know, trying right. to figure it out. But um, I think Trump is concerned about Biden because, uh, as early polls indicate, Biden is potentially one of the most electable Democrats in the field. Um, he would be... Uh, he would not be uh, a left-wing Democrat, and there are several of them in the field already, uh, and that would allow him, I think, to appeal to a lot of Trump voters in those key swing states of Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan. So I can understand why Trump is focused on Biden, because I think Biden is a major threat for Trump. Right. In terms of uh, Joe Biden, Joe Biden has run for president before, Twice, I believe, and it didn't work out. Yeah. I mean, he, he got stomped. Uh, tell us about that. And also, Joe Biden, if you go back far enough, and he is 76 years old, right. I believe. Right. If you go back far enough, which and he's got years you can go back and look at, he has a record that, that is not going to play that well in some of these primaries where a lot of progressive voters are going to come out. Well, Joe Biden was first elected to the U.S. Senate and served in the U.S. Senate until he became vice president. Uh, he was first elected to the U.S. Senate in 1972. Now, think about that. And, and he was very young. I mean, he was yeah. very right. young. Very young. But that's a long time to be in the Senate between 1972 and 2008. Um, and... Uh, when he ran for president in 1988, uh, he got into trouble for supposedly plagiarizing, using without attribution, a key campaign theme of the British uh, Labor Party leader, Neil Kinnock. Uh, and uh, 
because of that, uh, hurt, hurt himself early in the process, lost credibility and lost momentum. Um, having said that, uh, that's in his background. But also, uh, you know, he's been through a lot of issues over the decades. He voted for the Iraq War. He has opposed interracial busing. Uh, there are a bunch of... Um, positions that he took throughout his career that don't look so fashionable to Democratic liberals now. The question is, how would those be used against him in the Democratic primary effectively and by whom? And well, let me also mention, Esme, that he is not the oldest Democrat running. Bernie Sanders is 77. Wow. Uh, but another issue with Joe Biden that, that I think is bound to come up with all these women in the race is his role in the Anita Hill hearing. Oh, yeah. And, and I, I know that was a long time ago. And, and there are probably, you know, people kind of to me, to them, that, that may seem like ancient history. But especially with the Kavanaugh hearings, I think that this is a troubling issue. And Joe Biden is not – his positions on Anita Hill and his questioning of Anita Hill rankled an awful lot of feminists right. back and, in the day. And you could find ways to package that, put it on social media, and use it in a way that would be a real problem for Biden. So actually I think that Biden's generation and age uh, and record based on his age – uh, and long experience can be used against him. It's not at all clear to me that he is going to, we- you know, make it through uh, uh, such a crowded field and win the nomination with ease. I don't think that's the case. One of the reasons it's not the case is that Democrats have strict national proportionality rules. If you get 15% support in any state, you get delegates. Well, that we've got a bunch of candidates who are going to get a lot of delegates in a variety of different states. So it's more likely than it has been in decades that nobody will come to the national convention with a majority of delegates, in which case you fight it out on the floor. Okay. You know, you also have two, you know, very well-liked uh, African-American candidates mm-hmm. uh, in Senator Booker and Senator Kamala Harris. Mm-hmm. And you've got Joe Biden, who a lot of people say was one of the architects of, of a very stringent penal system in terms of, of mandatory sentences that now, in hindsight, uh, we look back on and the, the president, President Trump actually oversaw a reform of that system. Right. But, but back in the 90s, yes. this system that was put into place, when we look back on it, it, it was it was one that ended up really – Basically, I think most people agree, discriminating against people of color for decades. Well, it produced a a large-scale incarceration of African-American men in particular and also Latino men. And that uh, is going to be an issue that is going to be with Biden. See, right now Biden is not a candidate, so all of this is sort of – you know, right. percolating. Uh, but it will come up and be used in a variety of ways in both debates and in social media and in advertising. So I think, uh, you know, Biden is going to have a rough go of it. In fact, I think all those candidates are going to have a rough go of it because the field is so crowded. Uh, and, and let's talk, you mentioned Bernie Sanders and his age. And granted, people are living longer, and certainly I know people in their late 70s, 80s who are fitter than I am and, and 
perfectly, you know, completely on the ball. But obviously, we all know people who are that age who are not. Right. Is that is age a factor? Because certainly, I mean, twenty or thirty years ago, I, I think it certainly would have been. Mm-hmm. Well, we d- we don't we did not have throughout American history people this old running for president. This is new, and of course, people are living longer and are healthier. When you are older, though, a couple things uh, are in play. First of all, your health is more precarious. Something could happen immediately that could incapacitate you in a way that was far less likely 20, 30 years prior. Um, Second of all, uh, the presidency is an extremely demanding job. It, uh, just look at photographs of presidents in their first year right. and in their eighth year, and look at how they've aged. Uh, do you want to put someone in their 70s, and of course Donald Trump is one of those, in that situation and put them through four to eight years of stresses like that and hope that it works out well? I just think that the risks are greater. Right. And you, you bring up an excellent point. Certainly the photographs of, of President Obama or President uh, George W. Bush, uh, two of our more recent, most recent presidents other than President Trump, the aging has been dramatic. And, and they were relatively younger men in terms of the presidency. I, I do think actually President Trump looks pretty much the same. Well, I think a lot of that is due to a lot of hard work. <laughs> a lot of hard work in terms of the hair and the the, yeah. the tanning or whatever it is. But I, I do think he still looks pretty much the same as when he was first elected. But you're, you're probably right on that. Right. Um, well, he's been coloring his hair for quite a while. So, right. for example. There you go. Um, well, listen, we have to take a quick break, but but I do want to ask you when we come back as we talk about this field, obviously the, the new candidate to come in is one that is doing actually quite well, relatively speaking, not as well as Biden or Sanders in these polls, but Beto O'Rourke. So let's keep it here. You're listening to News Talk 830 WCCO. More with Stephen Shear after this. It is 821, Esme Murphy, along with Professor Stephen Shear, up up until 9 o'clock. All right, let's talk about Beto O'Rourke. This is a guy who's been in Congress for a few terms. Three terms. Three terms. Not not. That's not very long. That's six years. Um, He runs against Ted Cruz, and he comes close. He doesn't win, but he comes close within three percentage points, which for Texas is doing pretty darn well. Oh, yeah. And suddenly he's a sensation. I mean, what happened? Well, I think part of it is that he's energetic and charismatic. He's 46 years old, so he's 30 years younger than Joe Biden. But I mentioned Joe Biden because he and Joe Biden have a similar issue profile. They are generally liberal, but they are not uh, really on the left wing of their party. For example, uh, Beto... um, during his last term, when Donald Trump was serving his first two years as president, voted with Trump 30% of the time on the House floor. Now, I'm sure that will get a lot of attention going forward. Um, in terms of, of just you know his own persona, though, he's 46 years old. I, I think he looks younger. Maybe I'm getting to the point where I think a lot of people look younger, but I think he looks younger than he's than 46. Uh, and he just appears so much more useful. He skateboards. Mm-hmm. He's sort of a hipster. He was a punk rocker as a, you know, in his twenties. Is it is it just that people? I and I think I think maybe it is. 
people want somebody young and they want a fresh face. Yeah, I think that's right. And you, you had something similar working for John F. Kennedy in 1960, for example. You know, a fresh, charismatic face, uh, uh, the, the future of America embodied in a presidential candidate. And I think O'Rourke is trying to, per, uh, you know, uh, uh, illustrate that in his candidacy. Now, it may work, but he does have 14 opponents, as me. So. Right. But, but, you know, even, you know, right out of the gate, I mean, I'm just, I've got, uh, the website Real Clear Politics, which folks, if, you, if you're looking for a good website, this one's awfully good. They've got, you know, all the polls that have been done on the Democratic primary. Mm-hmm. And O'Rourke has been, you know, take out Biden Sanders. O'Rourke's, you know, ahead of a lot of them. Yeah. I mean, I mean he yeah. and I, I don't know. And I've heard sort of the Kennedy comparison quite a bit. When, yeah. when, when, and, and I don't know if it's because he almost looks like a, a a Bobby Kennedy. I mean, he, he's similar looking, which right. is kind of odd. Right. Uh, but I, I don't know if that's it or if it's the physique, sort of that slender physique and the overbite and, and the teeth and the hair. But he does kind of look like that. Right. Well, and also another part of his appeal to many Democrats is the fact that he was competitive in what has traditionally been a pretty red and Republican state of Texas. Uh, and uh, to the extent that he can broaden the playing field electorally, that makes him a very attractive candidate. Let, let me ask you this. Uh, this far out, and so we are now in March, so it's 11 months Actually, it's less than 10 and a half months yeah. until that, that Iowa caucus, which is in very early February. Historically, because I know that you're somebody who, who looks at this and has a really good grasp on this. Historically, how have the polls fared 10 and a half months out? Oh, they're not reliable. And, okay. Uh, uh, things can change dramatically, and they often do, even uh, on the verge of the Iowa caucuses. For example, in, in 2004, John Kerry, who had been lagging badly in the polls and in support, suddenly uh, went, you know, does quite well in the Iowa caucuses, and boom, his poll support explodes. So uh, doing well in Iowa could make a huge difference in the field. Let me ask you about Senator Klobuchar, because... Ever since she announced, she has had uh, an uphill climb against these allegations yeah. of not just being a tough boss, but being abusive. I mean, that's the allegate. Those are the allegations against her. What is your read on this? And is this something that she can overcome? A lot of senators are unpleasant bosses. I want to clue you in on this. Thing. Right. And that this is not news, really, in that sense. Uh, they can be abusive and tyrannical. Uh, note also that uh, the sources for all these uh, uh, Klobuchar stories are uh, uh, anonymous, so we're not, we can't we can't even assess the quality of the evidence against her. Uh, so these are all problems for her. She's fighting against a group of phantoms, you know, <laughs> uh, right. who say these things about her but are not held accountable for the quality of their evidence. So that's uh, that's unfair, but that's also politics. There it is. Um, the uh, I think the real problem for her is that, uh, you know, you, you don't get much uh, of an opportunity to introduce yourself to the American people. And uh, she, you know, she did okay in her announcement address. In fact, some people found the visual of the blizzard pretty appealing, although I doubt if it played well in Florida. 
<laughs> right. Well, I, I do. I actually do think that that the actual announcement she had all sort of these poetic lines all yeah. scripted about the, the river behind her and 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 the small. The small bridge, whatever, which is the Stone Arch Bridge, and you couldn't even see that it was snowing so hard. I, I thought, I thought visually, and I thought overall that announcement w- was wonderful. But I, I think what you're, where you're going about the fact that you just have so much time to really yeah. announce, and and the attention span of everybody these days is a nanosecond, and you've got this issue right up there, mm-hmm. and. I think it's an enormous distraction. Right, and what you are finding in media interviews, uh, this comes up all the time now. And when she's getting attention in the national media, it's her responding to the whole problem of her temperament and the way she treats her employees. Uh, She recently said in response to a question, a media question about that, that, well, you know, you've got to be tough, and I could stand up to Putin because I'm tough. Right. (laughs) You know, and I've been tough on my staff. Well, okay, I guess that's the best you can do with it, but it's a very awkward situation for her because she's getting known uh, as a person with a bad temper who eats salad with a comb, you know, and stuff like that just sticks out there in social media because it's so unusual. Right. But there still is a lot of time. And what you said, going back to what you said about how the polls really don't hold up, um, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Right. And for her, Iowa's make or break. That is, you know, uh, being from neighboring Minnesota, she's really going to have to do well in Iowa in order to keep going. So I think we can watch that very closely. And, of course, she's spending a lot of time in Iowa already. One question, though, is it more difficult for her because the persona that she – the public persona that she has uh, put out there and certainly embodies – and and is certainly very genuine. Mm-hmm. Is is of that of Minnesota nice? I mean, if yeah. if you meet her as a journalist, she, she's extremely personable. You know, sort of tells jo- she's very funny. She's charming, very easy to talk to. Mm-hmm. And, and this cuts against that to such a degree. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, well, you know, some of the leading candidates have a real edge to them. Uh, certainly, Bernie Sanders does. Uh, Kamala Harris can be you know, pretty abrasive in her rhetoric, and same with Elizabeth Warren. So uh, uh, you've got to get attention in a crowded field, and being nice may not be the best way to do that. All right. Well, we we, we shall see. As he, as you said, there's still a lot of time, and as you said, these polls don't always hold up. Yeah. All right, folks, um, we do have to take a break. We're chatting with Professor Stephen Shear. A lot to talk about. We want to talk about the controversy surrounding Ilhan Omar. Also, some of the big state issues as well. So keep it here. We're going to take a break. We're going to give you some weather, another break, and then we'll come back with more with Professor Stephen Shear. There we go. Happy St. Patrick's weekend, folks, uh, to all of you listening out there. Esme Murphy until 9 o'clock along with Professor Stephen Shear. Uh, Professor Shear, before we get to Ilhan Omar, I do want to ask you about Nancy Pelosi coming out this past week saying – I don't want to impeach President Trump. We're not there yet. And she basically said that. What are your thoughts about this? Because it caught a lot of progressives off guard. And some people within the Democratic Party were angry with her. Right. Um, I would also couple that with a quote from Steny Hoyer, the majority leader, Democratic majority leader in the House, who said, 
we have 62 new members of the House, not three. And he's speaking about <laughs> OLC and uh, Tabib and Omar as sort of defining the left agenda of the party. Uh, and uh, I think you can see Pelosi's response is part of a common approach to that of Cindy uh, Hoyer, basically thinking, how do we keep this majority in the House? We have to govern responsibly. And that means not overreaching and trying to impeach. The Republicans were burned in the 90s for trying to impeach Clinton, and they actually lost seats as a result of their prosecutorial zeal in the House. And I think she's aware of that. She thinks the evidence isn't there yet and does not want to be out in front on this issue in a way that might hurt her more moderate and um, uh, uh, moderate members who have narrow electoral majorities. Uh, those are the ones who might uh, suffer defeat in 2020 because of uh, an increasingly loud and left agenda in the party. And that's, why I think, her motivation behind those comments. Yeah, I, I also think it sets the stage where if there comes a point yes. where Nancy Pelosi says, now is the time, I think that gives her added credibility, if, if that ever happens. Exactly, exactly. And she's aware of that, and she's trying to maintain a ma- maximum personal influence over future events while protecting her, elect- her members who are at electoral risk. And that's what I think she was attempting to do by making those statements about impeachment. Right. All right. Let me ask you about, and, and that's an interesting comment, that we have 66 new members, not just three. Yeah. I, I don't really, I don't recall when ever seeing a, a freshman member of Congress getting this much attention as Ilan Omar. I mean, the only one who's getting more attention is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Right. Well, <laughs> but, she, but, uh, but she also, uh, o- I just call her OLC in order to get that out. Uh, OLC has really been, you know, on social media regularly uh, and has been courting it, I think, much more aggressively than Omar has. Um, but let's talk about Ilhan Omar because Senator Ron Latz was quoted in an article. Senator Ron Latz uh, represents St. Louis Park in the Minnesota State Senate. He is Jewish. And he uh, is quoted uh, in The Hill, which is a very well-known Capitol Hill publication, as saying that, that he can no longer support her yeah. and that there could well be a, a primary challenge to Representative Omar. Um, it, it's been sort of an extraordinary run of, of statements and, and, and comments and, and fallout and then sort of backtracking and really it sort of divided the party where they were going to – have a resolution talking about anti-Semitism, and then there was a backlash, and then they decided to have a resolution condemning all hate speech. Which you know, anyway, what is what is your take about this? How unusual is it, and and kind of where do we go from here with this? Well, it is highly unusual for a new member of the House to receive the attention of the sort that Elon Omar has received. Uh, and one wonders what she's learning from all this, because I think even she would admit that some of this attention has been unwelcome. Um, she has, I think, really uh, made herself a conspicuous target for people who disagree with her, and that's a problem. And another problem for her is that people, some of the people who conspicuously disagree with her about the Middle East and the roles of Jews in American life 
uh, are members of her district and her party. And uh, as you mentioned, Ron Latz is an example of that. Having said all that, though, I find it very difficult to believe that uh, she could be defeated in a Democratic primary in the 5th District, because the 5th District is one of the most liberal districts in the United States. And uh, uh, you essentially would have to run to the right of Omar, and I'm not certain that you can find many votes in the Democratic primary to her right. All right, and that that's an interesting point, because obviously – it is one of the most liberal districts in the country. Everyone is going to agree a Republican's not going to win that seat. It's a Democratic seat. Yeah. There's no question about that. But what you're saying is that you don't think that there's enough sort of conservative or or, I, or more more conservative yeah. or, or middle of the road Democrats out there who could actually beat her. Yeah. Yeah, who would want to take on that challenge because it's going to be, I think, quite difficult to do. Um, and so far, no one has emerged. And actually, someone's going to have to emerge fairly soon in order to uh, do the campaigning and raise the large amount of money you would need to take on a congressional incumbent in their own district. Right. So, so you don't think that, that a challenge um, at this point, you don't see that working um, no, I, I tend to think that uh, that uh, she she, uh, she is likely to be able to stay in the House for a considerable period of time. And so the interesting question is, May, is how she changes or evolves or alters her, first of all, the way she uh, uh, communicates in social media and with the more established media and with her constituents about these issues and whether she changes her mind uh, about some of these matters. Uh, that that's I think, bears careful watching. Well, and, and what I think is sort of so ironic about this is that in some ways I see similarities between her use of social media and the president's use of social media oh, yeah. because they both are strongly opinionated people uh, and they put it out there. And, 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 and inflammatory on both sides. <laughs> right, and and it's clear it's clear that they are doing it. It's not a and, and there are many. Um, not that this is a bad thing. Um, social media is an important way to connect with people, but you can kind of tell when it's a staffer doing it, yes, as opposed to you know the actual candidate doing it themselves. And and it's very very obvious that Representative Omar and the president are doing it themselves and putting stuff out there that that. They may strongly believe, but it's the way it's going over, the way it's being uh, read, the way it's being interpreted is something that, that creates a firestorm. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to compare Ilan Omar to uh, to her predecessor, Keith Ellison. Keith Ellison was a strong left-wing Democrat but did not get himself into uh, the sort of controversies that, uh, that uh, you know, certainly early in his term, uh, first term, that Omar has. Uh, Ellison, I think, was very quiet and careful early on to sort of establish himself in the House right. before he became uh, more outspoken, whereas Omar comes in with uh, everything flying, you know, right away. Right. And and although I, I will say that Keith Ellison is somebody who has he, 
he is also, you know, tweets and does all his own tweeting. And he did get in trouble, but it was nothing. You know, we thought it was trouble. It was nothing compared to this, though, in terms of the attention and in terms of the uh, extraordinary uh, fallout that that really sort of national uh, headlines and and a vote in Congress to, you know, condemn your statements and then it gets taken back. Uh, So it's really sort of a a remarkable turn of events. I mean, we'll we'll definitely wait and see. And and part of me wonders is just, is there sort of a growing process for her? Because this is somebody who's, you know, relatively speaking in politics, very young, 36 years old, but she was only a member of the Minnesota House for one term, right. one term. And then she was a community activist uh, within mostly the Somali-American community where, you know, there was sort of a monolithic approach in terms of ideas and policies. Yeah. And, and then she's, you know, one member of, of the Minnesota House and then suddenly she's got this enormous platform. I mean, it's been a very quick rise. Yeah, and consider how far she's come, you know, from being in a Somali refugee camp all the way to here. So she has a unique background for a member of the House, and I think that's reflected in her initial behavior. Um, And uh, we'll just have to wait and see how this plays out. I can't imagine that she will remain the the center of attention the way she has the last few weeks. First of all, the media always is moving on from one controversy to another. And second of all, uh, I think she's probably learned uh, 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 the element of caution can be her friend at times. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. We do have to take a very quick break. When we come back, we'll ask Professor Stephen Shear about politics at the state level here in Minnesota. We obviously have a new governor. The legislative session is sort of inching towards uh, May 20th when it shuts down. We've got a number of interesting legislative proposals out there. We'll ask Professor Shear his take on that. It's uh, 848 in the Twin Cities, 30 degrees. Some closing thoughts with Professor Stephen Shear and Esme Murphy talking politics. Let's talk about the state political scene. Uh, you've got a very energetic governor in Tim Walls. He seems to be everywhere. And the guy seems to be really enjoying being governor of Minnesota. Oh, I think so. Um, one thing he's doing is spending a lot of time in greater Minnesota trying to talk up his agenda because I think he believes that if the DFL is going to consistently prevail in statewide elections, they need to do better in greater Minnesota. And, of course, he's from Mankato and represented southeastern Minnesota's first congressional district for many years. So uh, that comes naturally to him. Right. Uh, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, he's he's – you know, every other day he's, you know, having a news conference in St. Cloud or he's down in Rochester. I mean, it's, it's a very noticeable, uh, shift. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing, it, it seems that overall, and I, I've covered a few news conferences over there at the Capitol. Uh, you had Senator Scott Newman, who's the chair of the Republican chair of the Senate Transportation Committee and who went out of his way to kind of thank the governor for, for participating and sort of they were talking about the Minlars fix that needed emergency money. There seems to be a little bit more of a – they're talking to each other, Steve. Right. 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 Yeah. Uh, well, and, Imagine that. Well, Mark Dayton during his final years uh, had a number of health problems and also – 
felt, I think, strongly disinclined to talk to Republicans, period. Now, Tim Walz seems willing to talk to Republicans, but that's why we have to keep in mind that the difference in the partisan agendas between the Republican-controlled state Senate and the governor are really, really big. And yes. uh, the question is how much happy talk can bridge those big differences, and I'm not sure. Right. Let me ask you this. Is there any pressure, do you think, on the Minnesota Senate, which is controlled by Republicans? It's not a huge majority. It's three votes, I believe, mm-hmm. three seats. Yep. How much pressure is there on the Minnesota Senate? They were not up for election at all in November. There was one special election, but that we'll put that aside. So, so the Senate wasn't up. The House was up and the House flipped from Republican to Democratic control. Do you think senators are looking at that? Uh, yes, but I think they're looking at several things. Um, first of all, uh, what uh, what aspects of the Waltz agenda would be popular in their districts and what aspects wouldn't? And, you know, uh, for example, uh, it's quite clear that Paul Gazelka, the Republican majority leader in the Senate, is in favor of, of uh, expanding rural broadband, and the governor's proposed that, so that's likely to occur. Right. On the other hand, uh, the large uh, tax increases, that, you know, the 20-cent-a-gallon gas tax and so forth, that's going to be tough to sell uh, in greater Minnesota, and I, I think Republicans are reflecting that. Right. Although, you know, Governor Walls actually went to Washington and testified before Congress and said, you know, every time I talked about raising the gas tax in the campaign, my poll numbers went up. He really believes, and I've asked him about this, he really believes he's got a mandate here and that this is what people want. No, they don't want to pay more for gas, but they are willing to pay more for gas if it gets them better roads and it gets them better bridges and it it, it improves – we're, we're all driving. Yeah, the problem with the politics of that is the taxes start right away and the improvements come gradually and, uh, you know, in small degree in a wide variety of places. And so uh, you can hit the governor on the tax increase uh, because people will more, only very gradually see the benefit of the tax increase. That's what makes it a difficult issue. Right. Um, you know, another issue uh, that we're seeing here and a lot of discussion, and there was actually a rally this week uh, at the Capitol of pro-gun control. The gun yeah, control measures yeah. are, are marching through the House, which, of course, is democratically controlled. You've got uh, grassroots groups. There's one Minnesota Moms Demand Action that has been very active. And I was fascinated to see this past week that you had Gwen Walls, Mrs. Walls, the yeah. First Lady – Speaking out in, in a very strong fashion, saying that that Republican senators would would be you know targeted, uh, and and we haven't we haven't seen it. It's sort of startling in a, in one way because we haven't seen that for so long. Obviously, Governor Dayton was not married. Uh, Governor Pawlenty's wife was very accomplished attorney, was a judge, so she couldn't speak out on a lot of issues. Uh, Mrs. Ventura, Terry Ventura seem to not be thrilled with the spotlight of being the first lady. So you have to go back, you know, 20 years um, to Arnie Carlson's wife, who was pretty active. But you saw sort of an activism there by by Mrs. Walls that uh, was noteworthy and and fascinating to see. Yeah, um, uh, well, and she has said, and there are at least 10 uh, uh, state Senate districts 
represented by Republicans that Tim Walz carried. And right, and she great. made that point. <laughs> yeah, she made that point. Um, and uh, let's unpack the politics of this for a minute. I think uh, the key element, uh, you know, I recently wrote an op-ed about this. There are three Minnesotas. There's greater Minnesota. There's the progressive central cities. And then there's the suburbs. And they are the swing area in the state. Now, I think the gas tax is a very difficult sell in the suburbs full of commuters. But gun safety, I think that can be a winner in the suburbs for Democrats. So the politics cut in different directions with different issues. And, and that that's something that remains to be seen. How about gun control, though? Because, again, you've got the governor who, who did an about-face on this. I mean, he did yeah. an about-face uh, after that Las Vegas massacre which was in October, I believe, of mm-hmm. twenty. It was it was a full year before yeah. the election, where, where he really didn't about face on this. He's obviously for gun control measures. Uh, the House, it's it's gotten further than it ever has. Republicans are saying no way. Yeah, Warren Limmer, who is a, a pro gun rights uh, Republican senator, has said, "Bring it on." You know, they're not going to. Uh, they, it's their belief that in their districts. It's a loser. Um, one of the key elements here is how salient the issue is, how much people think about it and really see it as a major concern. And I think these ma- massacres help to raise the salience and I think actually give momentum to gun control advocates. Um, yet it doesn't appear that this is going to get anywhere in the Senate, and Senator Gazelka obviously has an extraordinary amount of power there. Yeah, I th- and so I think the 2020 election at the state level will be fought over this issue, among others. Right. Well, listen, uh, Professor Stephen Shear, thank you so much for uh, spending your time with us on a Saturday evening. So much to break down. So much <laughs> more we could talk about as well, but I really appreciate it. Happy to do it, Esme. Thank you. And I know our listeners do as well. Thank you so much, Steve. You have a great evening down there in Northfield, and we certainly appreciate your time again. Okay. All right. Take care. All right, folks. Well, that uh, just about does it for me. I want to thank uh, the wonderful producer of this show, David Josephson. Uh, also producers Jonathan Lowe and the wonderful Shaletta Brundage. Uh, I want to give uh, David a, a special shout out because I believe he's moving on to, he's moving on up to bigger and better things. He is now the producer of the Henry Lake show and a, a big shout out, uh, to Henry Lake for coming in here in person. It was great to see him. You know, I had met him years ago. He used to come in for Rosen Sports Sunday and just what a nice guy, just dynamic, fun, personable, charming. And you can hear him every night, 9 p.m. to 1 a.m., Monday through Friday. This was his first week. He's obviously going to be a, a big star. He already is a big star, but he's going to be a big star here at CCO. So it was great to have him come in. Uh, really just, uh, wonderful to see him. Just, and again, just what, what a super, super nice guy. Uh, and again, uh, David Josephson uh, just done such a great job producing this show. And he was always also, you know, working on Dave Lee's show. Now he's going to do Henry Lake's show. I know he's going to do a terrific job, but I just, I really appreciate David's, all, all of his, you know, diligence. He's always been just, always such a, a great guy to work with. And I really appreciate it. And I know he's going to have a great time with Henry Lake, who is just a classy guy. And again, Shaletta, and uh, uh, thank you so much. Uh, And she's going to be with you, keeping you on the air here overnight. So keep it 
right here, News Talk 830. You are listening to WCCO Radio, News Talk 830. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 